Today is Sunday, April 11th, and you're listening to Narratives from the Black Diaspora and Beyond. The birds are chirping, the sun is, well, the sun was here a second ago. I'm excited nonetheless to present today's episode. I got a chance to sit down with a fabulous black writer and we discussed many things throughout this episode. We talked about the challenges in writing, preconceived notions people have of writers or the process of writing itself, and how writing, specifically for black authors in America, has been an arduous and fruitful journey. Towards the end of our discussion, she also presented three of her poems, one of which will be featured in Anthology Mag later on this year. And I hope you enjoy the poetry readings and this episode as much as I did. My name is Gina Gaines. My preferred pronouns are she, her. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've always loved reading. When I was a kid, reading was one of my favorite things to do. I read all sorts of books. I was really into realistic fiction, a little bit of fantasy fiction, a little bit of sci-fi, and a lot of the stories I read were just so, you know, amazing to me. When I read, I really dive into the book. I can feel what the character feels. I can see what the character sees. I've always been a very imaginative person. So for me, it's very easy to visualize what I read. Whenever we had free reading in class or whenever we were assigned to read a book, I loved it. I was one of the first people to go run and find a book. Book clubs were really difficult for me because I would always read ahead. Maybe we were only supposed to read like chapter one, chapter two. I'd read to chapter five because once I started, I I just couldn't stop. It was so fun. And after reading so much, you start to, or at least I started to really get inspired and think, well, what if I, what if I wrote something? What if I wrote a story or what if I wrote a book? And so what I started doing was I'd have a little notebook that was like my story ideas notebook. And in class or at home or whenever I felt a stroke of inspiration, I'd write the idea down. I had ideas for characters. I had ideas for plots, for settings. And basically all of these were just inspired by the books I've read. I used to spend so much time developing character traits and, you know, describing my characters, you know, appearance, their personality, their backstory. I really love to write backstories, even if I never use them or touch on them, because I feel like they're probably one of the most essential parts to character development, at least for the author. You know, if you understand, you know, a character's backstory, you understand their motivations, you know, why they make these decisions, why they say the things that they say, why they have the relationships that they have. And just the psychology of a character was always one of the most fun parts of writing to me. At recess, a lot of the times, instead of going off to play kickball or doing something on the playground, we'd go off in our own little corner and we'd make up stories. We'd make up stories about characters from our favorite TV shows or from our favorite books or movies, video games. And a lot of people used to make fun of us and kind of look at us funny because, you know, here we were off in the corner of the schoolyard 
wandering around in circles looks like we weren't really doing anything, but really we were creating worlds. We were, you know, expanding on ideas that we already knew. We were thinking, well, what if this character did this? Or what if this happened? Or what if we made another character to interact with them? And I think that's really how I got into storytelling. Looking back, reflecting on my life, I really do believe that I was born to be a storyteller or I was born to be a writer, not necessarily like the greatest writer in the world, but just writing has always been in me. Creating has always been in me. I consider it to be a hobby and a passion, every sense of the word. For a long period of my time, I actually didn't write anything in between uh, graduating from high school and then I want to say the time I was 25, yeah, 25, 26, I actually didn't really write anything. And so when I started writing again, that's when I really started putting a lot more time and effort into my poems and my stories. So I'm going to speak on when I started writing again as an adult at 25. What inspired my first short story was actually a song, a song by Porter Robinson called Sad Machine. This is another part of, I guess, something that I still carried from childhood. But a lot of times when I listen to songs, I'll imagine like a music video in my head or a story. And sometimes I'll think of different characters, situations that this could apply for. And when I heard that song, I just thought, well, what if there was someone that crash landed on this planet and the only person on the planet was a robot? And, you know, how would they interact? What would happen? What would they do? Every time I heard this song, I kept getting this these images in my head, almost like a movie that was playing. And you know, it was a very simple idea, but the more I got into it, the more intricate the story became. And that's when I said, I really want to write this. I really want to write this story. And I want to write it in a specific way that includes pieces of myself. biggest challenge I had to overcome, and this is probably a challenge that a lot of writers face, especially women writers and especially Black writers, but it's imposter syndrome. Being afraid that, you know, you're not good enough, not necessarily not a good enough writer, but maybe you don't feel like you're talented enough to write the story you want to write. A lot of my stories now have to do with science fiction because I love the science fiction genre, especially combined with romance. <laughs> you know, in the beginning I said, oh, I have to create this whole new planet. You know, he crashed, they crash land into this planet. I have to think of the gravity, the science, the astrophysics. And I was like, I'm, I'm not smart enough for this. <laughs> I don't know anything about any of that, you know, apart from what I've seen in sci-fi movies. But I was like, well, you know, if I write this, people are going to read it and think, oh, like, this isn't true. This isn't factual. Like, I, I can't, I can't get into this. I can't really believe it. I was afraid they wouldn't be able to suspend the disbelief, which is something that a lot of readers do as they consume, or not just readers, but anyone that views any type of creative content. They suspend their disbelief in order to really dive into the story or dive into the content. And I was afraid first that 
you know, the imposter syndrome. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't talented enough. I didn't have the technical writing skills or, you know, the writing background that I felt like I should have had to write this. I was afraid it would be too far-fetched that no one would be able to suspend their disbelief and they just write it off as, oh, this is ridiculous. Oh, this is silly. Oh, this is stupid. Also, too, getting over this feeling, I, I can't really describe it other than this cringe, this cringe feeling. A lot of times when I re- reread my own writing or go back and edit, I just feel so embarrassed. I feel so embarrassed about what I've written. Like, oh, this is so corny. Or, oh, like I sound so, you know, full of myself. Like anyone that reads this is going to think that, you know, this is the corniest thing they've ever read. They're going to cringe. And (laughs) it's actually, I laugh because it's ridiculous, you know, hearing myself say that, but it's actually a very serious problem I've had. Just that feeling of discomfort, when I reread, um, again, going back to not thinking I'm good enough, thinking how dare I try to stand with the greats, with the published authors, with the renowned authors, the classically renowned. And like when my writing itself is so, you know, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it, I guess, just uh, conceited, arrogant, facetious, I don't know. But that's definitely, it's something I still struggle with now. What I try to do is I try to kind of step out of myself for a moment and step into my reader's shoes. You know, of course, it's corny to me because I've been rereading this a million times and I already know what's going to happen. I know what I've said, what words I've used to describe. But to someone who's reading it for the first time, they're not going to have the same reaction as me. Someone apart from myself might think that, you know, wow, this is really cool or this is, you know, something very interesting. In a way, I kind of force myself to have an outer body experience and (laughs) try to take a different perspective of it because that way I don't get so much in my head and psych myself out. I feel like a lot of new budding writers have that problem. They psych themselves out. My best piece of advice is to just remember that you're not going to be the only one reading this. All, all sorts of people are going to read it if you if you choose to share with the world. You don't have to. That's something I'll touch on later. The last challenge that I face is trying to write with a pretty debilitating mental illness. So I have something called borderline personality disorder. I was diagnosed when I was 18, and it's something that has affected every facet of my life. I've been very fortunate to have good psychiatric care the past decade of my life, but it's definitely it's definitely played a part with writing challenges because sometimes I use the emotions I feel to help further my writing. It's just so, I guess, debilitating, for lack of a better word, that I can't even write. I sit down at the computer, I have like the thoughts and ideas, but bringing myself to write, bringing myself to do anything is almost impossible, it feels like. And it's really frustrating to me because, you know, working a job, having family obligations, things like that, I don't always have the time to write when I want to write. And it seems that, you know, when I'm the busiest and I can't write creatively, that's when I have the most ideas and I feel the most inspired and the most motivation. And then when I have free time, and I am able to, you know, spend some time working on my writing, then I just have no inspiration. I feel absolutely nothing, or I have a depressive episode, or, you know, something that um, kind of prevents me from, like, fully allowing myself to dive into my creativity. And it's quite frustrating, but I try to remind myself to just kind of go with it. I feel like in 
our capitalistic society, we place so much emphasis on you have to be productive. You have to make something. You always have to be doing something. And especially if you're a creative, you feel that pressure to stay relevant to, oh, I have to get something out or else people will stop caring. (laughs) Yes, I feel that so hard. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and they want to, capitalism wants us to commodify everything. If you you know, write for fun and you really like it and you share your work with people, they say, oh, like, this is so good. You should sell it. You should sell an ebook. You should sell an Amazon book. You should basically just monotonize something that, you know, you started off doing for fun. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I want to, I want to say that there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to get paid for your work, especially if it's something that you've put, you know, your heart and soul into, because you deserve that. You deserve that. But I also challenge that thought by saying, you don't, you don't need to commodify your passions. It's okay if you never get published. It's okay if you never write the book. That's not the important part. The important part is that you are doing something that revitalizes you, something that fills you with passion, something that allows you to be imaginative, that brings joy into your life, that allows you to create something that otherwise would not have existed. That's what's important. It's not whether you become a bestseller and become on the get on the New York Times bestseller list in 2021. That's that's not important here. The important part is that you made something that no one else can. And a lot of people, I guess, forget about that. They, you know, a lot of people see the finished product. This is any any type of creative content. So music, writing, podcasts, movies, anything. They see the finished product and they consume it. And they say, oh, that was good. Or, oh, that was kind of boring. I didn't really like that. And they don't really think about the process that went into it. You know, they didn't see the hours of work that someone put into making this. They didn't see, you know, the late nights you spent crouched over your laptop at the kitchen table. They didn't see you vigorously editing audio or editing like your artwork, a graphic design or adjusting the lighting, you know, there's just so much that goes into something like this. And again, going back to capitalism and making things a commodity, it's not only harmful to creatives and writers, artists, things like that. It's also harmful to consumers because we really don't, I guess, get the chance to fully understand or fully delve into the author's creative process. And I feel like that is such an important part of consuming content. That's why, you know, when I really like a movie or a book, I'll go and I'll read, you know, what the author said about it, what the director said about it. I'll read about the production, what they did during certain scenes, certain parts of the story, because I want to understand. I want to know what did inspire them. What made them want to make this specific story and tell it? I don't want to be a passive consumer. I want to be an active consumer. Just as a creative, that's that's something that's very important to me. Same with my favorite music artists. I love to know, like, what does this lyric mean? Why did they put this line at this part with this, you know, with this sound combination? Like, what was going on in their head? I just think people really need to keep keep those things in mind when you consume something. It's not just, especially books. Books, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the process it takes to get a book published, but it's not that you write a story, you send it to a publishing agent, and then it gets published right there, right there and right then. That never happens. <laughs> it usually takes years 
years and years, actually, for someone to even accept your submission. And then even after your submission is accepted, you still need to edit it. Edits, depending on how long the book is and how um, persnickety your editor is, that can take even, you know, such, such a long time. These books that you see in the bookstores, you think, oh, like, you know, you read the back of the page and you're either, oh, that sounds really cool. I want to read this or, oh, no, I'm not really sure. Just remember that what you're holding in your hand is the product of most likely years and years of just arduous labor, arduous creative labor. And yeah, just remember, even if it's something you're not into or something you don't think is interesting, like take time to appreciate that because someone really poured their soul into this. If they didn't pour their soul into this, it wouldn't have been possible because you have to do it. With a process that takes, you know, years and years, it has to be something that you really want to do or else you wouldn't do it. Books are books are souls. Books are pieces of our souls. I truly believe that. actually have a problem with looking back at my work. <laughs> Sometimes it'll be months before I check something that I've written. In fact, this happens to me all the time. I actually forget that I write things sometimes and I won't remember until I'm going through my Google Docs and I see, oh, what's what's this here? I'll click on it. Oh yes, I remember. I started writing this back in uh, July 2020. <laughs> It's it's interesting when you step away from your work for a long time and then come back to it, you, you look at it differently because when you wrote it, you wrote it at a time in your life that you were a, a different type of person. You were having different experiences. Your certain things hadn't happened yet. You essentially, it was a look back into your past to be, what was I thinking about then? What was I inspired by? What was I feeling? I think I think it's good to do that sometimes to kind of step away from a work and then come back to it like a little while later because you look at it and it's like you don't recognize it so it seems almost like someone else's writing and back to what I said about feeling cringe or feeling, you know, embarrassed about what you wrote, that cringe feeling kind of disappears, at least for me when I go back to my work and read it again. There's a lot of times I've done that and said, "Wow, this is really good. Pat myself on the back. <laughs> Didn't know I had it in me. But at the time I was thinking when I wrote it, I thought, oh, this is, you know, not that good. Like I feel corny, blah, blah, blah. A lot of people do say you should check your, your manuscript every day or, you know, every week just to keep up on it. I think it's a good thing to step away from it for for a while, for a long time, because then you can come back with a very refreshed state of mind and a new approach and bring whatever experiences, feelings, or lessons learned into that manuscript and make it expand it, expand it past uh, where it was before and give it a new breath of fresh air or breathe new life into it, if you could say. I don't typically abandon things. There are a few there are a few stories or poems that I've abandoned, but I still look back on them. And some of them I'm like, eh, I'll probably never show this to someone or I'll never show it to anybody or eh, I don't know if I'll do anything with it. But it's nice to look back and just to see uh, what I've done, what I've accomplished. Remembering like, oh, yeah, I remember I wrote this because I was inspired by a crush I had on this girl or this guy. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't talk to them anymore. <laughs> Thank you.
I actually submitted a short story and a poem to the Anthology Mag, which is an anthology magazine specifically for Black writers. And a lot, I'm pretty sure a lot of the writers are LGBT as well. My short story was rejected, which really hurt my soul. <laughs> it really did. And for a while, I actually didn't write anything after that because I thought I was a failure. I thought I, I would never become anything. My writing would never be read by anybody. Everything was pointless. You know, I really, I really fell into a downward spiral when that happened. And that was my first rejection. And I also submitted kind of a little snippet of the novel I'm writing to a few publishing agencies that were specifically looking for Black writers, and I never heard from them. Not No email back, no feedback, nothing. Both of those things were like a double whammy, and I was just so heart set on being published. And I think I touched on this a little, a little while ago when I said the most important thing is not to get published, it's to create. Going through this period of just this essentially like a depressive period where I thought I'd never, my writing would never amount to anything. No one would ever read it. Like I'd never make a living off of it. I was so obsessed with the idea of being a published writer. I thought this is the end all be all. This is, you know, my purpose. Like if this doesn't happen for me, then my life is pointless. And it took me a few months to realize and also connecting with other writer friends of mine and getting their encouragement. But again, the most important thing isn't to get published. It's not to commodify your work. You know, it's great if you can, and that's, you know, awesome if you can make it happen. But I just realized I wasn't writing for myself. I was writing for other people. I was trying to write things that I thought other people would want to read. And I just realized, well, like, what about me? What about what I want to write? What about the stories I want to read? Again, that was, you know, going back to my childhood, thinking about the stories I wanted to write, the characters and ideas I was inspired by. I wanted to write because these were stories I wanted to read. After that rejection, you know, I took the time to be sad and to feel bad and mope around. But after a while, I said, you know what? I'm going to start coming back into myself and coming back into my, I guess, creativity because really, like, this is for me. This is my work. This is my soul, my soul that I am putting into this story, into this poem, into this book. And I, I need to write for me. And after I like had this like moment of realization, this, this enlightenment, writing became fun again. It became easier. It became more organic. Yeah, that was the first time that I submitted anything for publication. A couple months after I submitted my short story and my poem, I get an email saying, oh, we're so sorry. Like, I thought this email went through. We actually want to publish your poem in our anthology. And I was over the moon when I received that. Like, the poem I wrote, which I will read for you today, I worked so hard on it. Last summer, I worked, spent all my free time writing this short story, working on this poem, editing it. And so for it to be chosen, I felt like I was chosen. And it will be available come mid-March, um, the anthology mag. So I'm, I'm really excited. I'm excited to see my work in a published anthology with other Black creatives, with other Black LGBT creatives specifically. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you've heard about writing or writers? 
Some of the biggest misconceptions would have to be the way you write or your writing style. So I'm sure you've heard this before, but they say don't use an excessive amount of adverbs when you are writing. For example, she smiled happily and he walked angrily. I actually think that when used when when used correctly, adverbs can add a dynamic to a scene or to an action. Of course, if someone smiles happily, you know, usually people smile happily, but think about, you know, a dastardly villain. If he smiles menacingly, you know, that gives a whole new meaning to the action and it gives a whole new image in your head. So I don't necessarily think that adverbs are the devil, <laughs> as, people, as people say. And then things like, you know, oh, you're not supposed to start a sentence with because. Well, I've read beautiful works, beautiful works where the authors start sentences with because, and it doesn't take away from the story. I think when you make a stylistic choice, you have to do it with purpose, of course, but you also shouldn't let these arbitrary rules that were created by, you know, people in power saying, oh, this, this is the proper way of writing. This is the proper way of speaking. And if you don't write or speak this way, then it's incorrect or it's wrong or it's bad or, you know, it's tacky, whatever. If you look at a lot of black writers from the 1800s, 1900s, they wrote stylistically. They wrote how black people talked back then. And I don't think that we should be so critical of these stylistic choices if it's done with a purpose, because again, it adds something dynamic. It adds something, gives you more vivid imagery. It gets you to know the characters a little bit more. So if you want to use the adverbs, use the adverbs. If you want to use passive language, use passive language. If you want to start a sentence with because, then then do it, but do it with purpose and have a reason for doing it. That's That's what I'm saying. It's very unfortunate to say, but Existing as a Black person in America is political in and of itself. Unfortunately, our experience is often weaponized, it's often used. Basically, I think it's impossible to not include social or political issues in work when you are Black. Because again, just the act of existing as a Black person is political in and of itself. A lot of times, if you look back at you know, classic Black authors like Zora Neale Hurston, Maya Angelou, they're writing about their experiences as Black people, and oftentimes that incorporates or intertwines with the political climate or the social climate. In Their Eyes Were Watching God, it was the experience of a multiracial woman living in an America that was, again, very like racially divided reading about her navigating her life, navigating relationships with her, with her Black ancestry, a lot of that had to do with the fact that these, these are characters with experiences that come from families that are descendants of slaves. And we're still very much, we're still very much dealing with the consequences of that, with the aftermath of that. And another thing too that I want to touch on is how difficult it is as a Black writer to get published and how historically it's been difficult. And in recent years, yeah, um, diversity has improved. People are looking for Black authors. They're specifically asking and you see a bit more, a bit more diversity, especially in children's novels. It's still not as prominent, not as popular or best-selling as white authors. Just bringing that Bringing that perspective or bringing the perspective of a Black person or, you know, a Black disabled person, a Black LGBT person, a Black woman, a Black non-binary person, I think oftentimes it's going to be viewed as political. 
and it's going to be viewed as, you know, a commentary on social issues. A lot of the things I'm writing about now have to do with the effect that COVID-19 has had on me, on the Black population, and then how it will affect us in the future. And part of my coping with, you know, all the craziness that's going on right now is using speculative fiction. So science fiction, where will Black people be in the future? What is something we can do to ensure our survival in a world that is very hostile towards us, in a world that wants to see us dead, does not want to see us succeed? What if we used fiction to help us succeed? People always say, oh, fiction doesn't affect reality. It absolutely does. It absolutely affects reality. And if all you're reading in fiction is stories about, you know, being slaves or being workers instead of being astronauts, astrophysicists, that's sort of the mindset you're going to carry with you. And that's another reason why I want to, I think it's important for me to write because I want Black people to see themselves in all roles. I want them to see themselves as space travelers, as princesses, as kings and queens, as princes, as forest explorers, mushroom foragers, dragon riders, dinosaur bone digger uppers, (laughs) everything, everything, because we, we don't get that. We don't get that. We get the cast, the typecasting. We get, which, and this is not to denounce or say that, you know, stories about slavery or about working class people aren't valuable and aren't worthwhile. They absolutely are. And they need to be told. But also, too, we need to be granted the same, I guess, level of imagination that white characters get. I think it's vitally important that Black authors and Black writers keep writing. Keep writing, keep making characters, keep self-inserting yourself into fix, write fan fiction with Black readers, do, do everything. Because we need that. We need this content. We need this content to manifest into reality ourselves. Because if we can see ourselves in books, we can see ourselves in reality. This poem is called, I Hope Them Boots Taste Good. It will be available in the Anthology Mag in March 2021. Strange fruit hang from the tops of trees, red, black, and blue for all to see. We stand beside the blood-stained wood. I really hope them boots taste good. Knives and water fill our lungs. The work of martyrs goes unsung. They scream at us with faces bare. I sure hope them boots are fair. Children watch from metal bars as mom and dad are crushed by cars. They sought new life. We gave them chains. I hope them boots don't taste too plain. Eight minutes with a man in blue. A sea of eyes still doubt the truth. Our skin has always been suspicious, but I bet them boots are very delicious. She fought for us until the day her comrade took her life away. Cover up, tossed out case. Guess them boots were to your taste. They came for her when she was asleep. Her trust in him was six feet deep. They didn't obey. We always should. Damn, 
them boots must taste so good. This poem is called, What Happens to a Prayer Unheard? What happens to a prayer unheard? Does it fall to the ground, like a broken winged bird? Or does it spoil, like rotten milk curds? Does it hang like fruit from trees absurd? Can we rise with dreams deferred? Does it stay in the heart, where it tears and claws? Does it bleed out and scream like a scab-picked raw? What fate befalls an unheard prayer? Perhaps it will become despair. Or is it still there? This poem is called Daisuke. You are the blink of an eye, a wandering breeze upon my shoulder, a single kiss on bumpy brown skin. You are the late afternoon on the turquoise waters of Hermosa, soft and cool and ever fleeting. You are the two weeks of sun showers before the heat of the summer, the part of a stream that flows away with one touch. My ears remember the sweet somethings you whispered over your sheetless bed. My lips miss your forehead and the smiles you used to give them. The ghost of you is still in me, invisible, but plain to see. The last poem is called, Alone in a One-Bedroom Apartment. I want someone to yell at when the dishes aren't done, and I find myself elbow deep in dirty plates and forks. I want to be annoyed with cupboards left unshut and underwear hanging off door handles when the laundry basket is right there, damn it. I want to yearn for personal space after having another pair of hands on me for most of the day. I want to learn to cook for two, or three, or five. The silence is so heavy when I'm alone in a one-bedroom apartment. Gina, thank you so much for sharing your poetry, your journey with writing. I appreciate it so much. You're an awesome friend. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I feel very blessed and grateful to be able to share my art with you today. Thank you. It's been a blessing. It's been a blessing to speak with you, to speak freely. I really appreciate you holding the space for me.